0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurosurgeon tells about a minimally invasive surgery to repair herniated discs called microdiscectomy.
1: There is theoretically no reason why they can't go back and resume their full physical activities after this type of surgery.
0: An exercise physiologist explains how and why the Exercise as Medicine initiative got started.
2: The initial purpose was. To really spread the news of the scientific benefits of regular activity.
0: And we'll hear from a researcher involved in the first systematic review of experimental
3: research on the effects of cannabis on pain. Some studies were saying that uh, cannabinoids were working, some of them were saying that they weren't, and then some even said that uh, they were increasing people's pain sensitivity.
0: All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. Your chance to explore health, science and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about the Exercise Medicine Initiative. Then a researcher will talk about the effects of cannabis or marijuana on pain. But first, a neurosurgeon explains how a herniated disc can be repaired in a minimally invasive surgery. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A herniated disc in your back can be painful and debilitating, and sometimes the recommended treatment is surgical. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about options is neurosurgeon Larry Chin, who leads the Department of Neurosurgery at Upstate. Thank you for being here, Dr. Chin.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Uh, let's start, if you don't mind, um, explaining what causes a herniated disc. And I've heard it called slipped or ruptured, bulging, that's all the same thing, right?
1: Yeah, those are all terms to indicate a condition where the, uh, the disc, which is a shock absorbing material that you find in between uh, the bones of your spine or the vertebrae, um, uh, ruptures through the tough fiber that uh, holds the disc in place. And so it's a sign of degeneration. Uh, and degeneration can be just normal wear and tear Uh, it can be uh, people who have done a lot of heavy work uh, involving their back or played sports uh, may have stressed uh, their back and that can lead to the uh, degeneration of the fibers around the disc and when they become weak enough or if there is a sudden event say an accident, uh, or you lift something really heavy suddenly, or fall, uh, a piece of disc can pop out, and that's a herniated disc.
0: So it can be from an injury or just from normal wear and tear? Yeah, it
1: can be normal wear and tear. And it doesn't always have to be a piece of disc that herniates out. It might be that the entire disc uh, bulges. But the end result is that the spinal canal, which is where your nerves are running, is sitting directly behind the disc. And so if the disc is bulging out or a piece pushes out, that can pinch the nerves in your spine and that causes what we typically think of as sciatica. What happens when you have a herniated disc in your low back, in your lumbar spine.
0: And is sciatica is that that's a pain that flows down your leg you'll feel it going down your leg sort of
1: correct sciatica is the most common uh, symptom of uh, a lumbar herniated disc and that's a very characteristic uh, sharp stabbing shooting pain that begins typically in your butt and goes down the back of the leg or sometimes goes around the side of the leg uh, can be associated with back pain as well
0: So can this happen to anyone at any age, or do you mostly see this in older people?
1: Well, you tend to see it in older people because as we age, we just accumulate wear and tear on our bodies. And so it's not an uncommon situation uh, to see a herniated disc or the associated condition, which is called spinal stenosis, uh, which is uh, narrowing of the spinal canal, again, causing pressure on the nerves. But not from a disc, but from overgrowth of the joints in the supporting structures, the ligaments in the spine. So those things you tend to see in older people because of wear and tear. But you can also see it in younger patients, and that is typically associated with more of a traumatic event.
0: Are most of the disc herniations, do they happen in the lower spine, or, does it, or could you get them in the neck or the...
1: The two most common places are in the low back, the lumbar, lower lumbar spine, and then in the cervical spine, in the neck. Uh, and that's because those are the parts of your body, uh, or the parts of your spine, where you have the most movement. And so that's where the degeneration typically occurs uh, most commonly.
0: Now, do herniated discs ever get better on their own?
1: They do. And in fact, most herniated discs will get better just with conservative therapy rest, physical therapy, and really it's time.
0: Just time for the body to sort of heal? Time for
1: the body to heal, heal, yes.
0: Is there any way to predict when you see someone with a herniated disc whether a conservative treatment is going to do it for them or if that's not going to work and they need something more? You can't
1: always tell. Generally, uh, the rule is, is is. We always try conservative therapy first, unless the patient has a condition that really requires that you uh, operate right away. So for instance, if somebody has a weakness in their foot, um, that might not get better or might become permanent if you don't um, take out the disc and relieve pressure on the nerve. Uh, Or if someone has bowel and bladder symptoms that can be permanent um, those are situations where it's more of an emergency and, and we're going to urgently do an operation. But otherwise, I always try to start with uh, conservative treatment.
0: And probably most patients would want want that absolutely uh, as well. So are there situations where a patient sort of has to decide whether this is something they can tough out or live with versus surgery?
1: Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, I ask most patients uh, How much is this affecting your life? Once you have surgery, you can't ever take it back. So I always want uh, patients to understand that uh, not every surgery is successful. Not everybody gets better. And oftentimes, if you give uh, this particular problem long enough, it will uh, get better. And so I think uh, patients need to consider their options. And sometimes uh, the treatment can be worse than the disease, as we know.
0: You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Larry Chin, the chairman of neurosurgery at Upstate, and we're talking about a procedure to repair herniated discs. So I wanted to have you describe. It's called a microdiscectomy. Is that correct?
1: Correct. A microdiscectomy means that uh, we are approaching the spine through usually minimally invasive techniques. So we're trying to minimize uh, either the skin incision, we're trying to minimize the amount of um, muscle, the muscles around your spine that we're uh, going through, and also minimizing the amount of bone that we're removing in order to get to the nerve and to the disc. And we do this through an operating microscope, which gives us uh, uh, magnification and light down into a deep hole, and so that's why it's called a microdisc.
0: Microdisc. So you're looking through like a microscope to do this?
1: Exactly, Uh, an operating microscope, and that really allows us to take out the disc, relieve pressure on the nerve, and leave the structures around the spine as intact as possible.
0: So I was going to ask how much bone gets removed, but that's got to be dependent on the situation, on the patient, and what's happening, right?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Depending on the location of the disc and uh, and the size.
0: So how long does a surgery like this take?
1: Uh, it can be very quick. It might take uh, only an hour uh, to do. So a very simple microdisc, one to two hours maximum.
0: And then what is recovery like afterward?
1: Well, patients uh, get up right away. So I have the patients uh, out of bed, ambulating, uh, in many cases, patients can go home the same day, or uh, if they stay overnight, they can go home early the next morning.
0: That sounds when you are talking about it's a it's a back surgery, spine surgery, going home that same day sounds pretty amazing.
1: Well, you know, with uh, advances in uh, in surgical technique, with advances in anesthesia, we're really able to get patients uh, mobilized and and up and back to their normal lives uh, pretty quickly. Now
0: this micro this is sort of an alternative to open surgery, right?
1: Well, it is open surgery. We're still making an incision through the skin. We're doing it through really fairly small incisions. Uh, So I would still consider it an open operation. What we've done is just progressively become more and more refined with our technique.
0: Who is a candidate for microdiscectomy then?
1: Really, anybody's a candidate. It depends on uh, the severity of the disc herniation, the size. It depends on what other factors are going on with the patient. Uh, Do they need something more extensive? Uh, For instance, uh, a fusion of the back that would require a more extensive opening and placing screws uh, into the back, things like that.
0: Now, do all neurosurgeons offer a micro
1: I would say most surgeons that uh, uh, that are providing specialized spine care um, if they have patients that have this particular problem are doing a variation of this type of operation okay I'd say it's fairly standard now
0: now can we talk a little about potential complications cuz if things if, if something were to go wrong what would it likely be
1: well, the things that we're watching out for are damage to the nerve, which could result in weakness uh, in the leg or foot, and numbness uh, in that same area. Uh, if you uh, injure the covering around the nerves, you can get leaking of spinal fluid. Of course, any operation, there is a risk of having uh, getting a blood clot in the area of the surgery or getting an infection in the area of the surgery, but those are the most common uh, issues.
0: Now, for patients, how soon after the surgery would they realize that it worked?
1: Well, you can wake up, and, and most patients wake up and feel better right away.
0: Good to know. So talk to me about what life is like after a discectomy. Can people go back to what they used to do?
1: Absolutely. In fact, that's the reason for doing this through a, a minimally invasive approach so that you're uh, reducing the amount of of injury to the muscles and to the bone and to the ligaments, and that gets a patient up faster. And uh, there is theoretically no reason why they can't go back and resume their full physical activities after this type of surgery.
0: What are the chances of a re herniation?
1: It definitely happens. Uh, you'll see it maybe 10 15 percent of the time. Uh, so Whatever the condition is that led to the original disc herniation, uh, it can always cause that same disc to re-herniate, or uh, you could get a herniation at another disc level in the lumbar spine. And so that's why it's very important uh, that patients that have this problem really start a, a good regimen for strengthening their back and uh, avoiding the, the things that will lead to uh, disc herniations and back problems in the future.
0: Do uh, patients that have gone through spine surgery of any sort does that increase um, arthritis risk for the future?
1: Well, you could think of a herniated disc or these spine problems like stenosis as arthritis of the spine. Uh, oh. It's a degenerative condition of the of the back and oftentimes of the joints. And so, in that sense, it is like it an arthritis. Is. Okay. Yes.
0: Well, is there anything you would advise listeners to do that can help prevent um, disc herniation?
1: Absolutely, I would say the biggest issues are number one: uh, try to stay at your ideal weight, uh, so that that's less stress on the uh, on the lower back. Patients who smoke uh, oftentimes will have more accelerated degeneration of their spine, um, and then it's mostly uh, healthy practice. So eating well, a good diet, regular exercise, uh, the more you can build up your core strength, so uh, building up uh, your abdominal muscles, your back muscles, increasing your flexibility, all of those things help you protect your spine and reduce the amount of stress that your spine undergoes every day, which is inevitable because we're standing up and. We're fighting against gravity and we're working and we're playing and all these things uh, uh, do stress the back.
0: When you talk about strengthening your core, that's probably part of, I don't know, is there rehabilitation after a discectomy?
1: Not necessarily. Oftentimes I have patients just resume their normal activities and just pay attention to what they're doing. Uh, But physical therapy and and there are back strengthening uh, regimens and exercises that you can teach. Uh, many physical activities uh, that you do, um, just aerobic activity, walking, uh, yoga, things like that really require a lot of core strength and, and all of that is, is very good for your back.
0: Well, thank you so much for this information. My guest has been Upstate's Chairman of Neurosurgery, Dr. Larry Chin. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink here. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, exercise as medicine. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. No combination of medications available today can replicate the benefits associated with consistent physical activity. That's why the American College of Sports Medicine developed an initiative called Exercise is Medicine. And here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about that initiative is exercise physiologist Carol Sames from Upstate Medical University. She's the director of the Vitality Fitness Program and an associate professor of physical therapy education. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Amber. So, can you explain the major goals of this exercise medicine initiative?
2: Absolutely. So. Just to give some background, it started in 2007 from the American College of Sports Medicine along with the uh, American Medical Association, and the initial purpose was to really spread the news of the scientific benefits of regular activity. And um, so that was the initial purpose. And there's kind of three major principles that we need to recognize that physical activity is really crucial to health and wellness, and it should be monitored as a vital sign, just like we would take heart rate or blood pressure, um, height and weight, um, along with other traditional vital signs. The other large principle was that physical activity is is powerful in terms of a modality and that it can be used for primary prevention and secondary prevention and that's really key because primary prevention means that it helps to reduce the risk for the development of and specifically cardiovascular disease because that is the number one killer of americans but then also secondary prevention is Say I already have cardiovascular disease. If I start a physical activity program, it can reduce my risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. And that is really powerful because there are no medications out there um, that, that have that type of power. So, and it
0: seems like if there were, there would be
2: huge headlines about it. Absolutely. Right? Well, and, and whoever would design such a pill uh, would be quite wealthy, right. and we probably would all be taking it. Um, and then the third, and I think this is also really important, is that um, that's success for exercise as medicine is going to require not just healthcare professionals, but individuals themselves um, and. Um, Uh, community members so that there is a a, a responsibility also on communities to offer um, more green space, more uh, areas that uh, people can engage in wellness and activity so that it's not just this top-down my physician or my physician assistant is telling me to, but that we have this kind of community um, that involves everyone.
0: Okay. All right. Well, the, uh, the guidelines. What? Um, let's talk a little bit about the exercise
2: guidelines. Okay. How much exercise or activity okay. is enough? So generally, it's 150 minutes a week of moderate activity, um, and moderate is is the ability to carry on a conversation, uh, and that can be done um, in smaller increments, but 150 minutes total or 75 minutes of more vigorous, more intense activity per week. Um, we do know that there's also a dose response so that if I'm able to achieve 300 minutes a week of moderate uh, intensity activity, that has additional health benefits. So again, we're seeing a dose effect with exercise. And then the same with uh, vigorous, if we can get up to 150 minutes a week. So at least 150 and more if you can. Right. And then from a strength training perspective, two uh, sessions of strength training per week. We need muscle to be strong and to move. And so two sessions a week. And for older adults, there should be an inclusion of balance type activities. Okay, that makes sense.
0: And these are things um, that don't require necessarily a, a gym membership. These are things you can do sort of on your own.
2: Absolutely correct. You can do body weight activity that is strength training. I can walk. Um, You know, granted, sometimes it's challenging in weather to walk outside. I can walk around my house or my apartment. Um, If I'm able, I can do stairs if I have them. So, um, you know, a little creativity can go a very long way. And what about for people with um, a chronic
0: illness or a disability um, is this all? Does does this apply to
2: them as well? Absolutely, and certainly within any limitations they would have. But movement in. Activity is for everyone because the way we were put together with our bodies, we need to move. So the guidelines are the same. Um, what has been also happening is we know that there's been an increase in sedentary behaviors um, in the U.S. And um, so independent of physical activity, sedentary behavior is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Um obesity, certain types of cancer. And so we kind of have a two-prong approach. A, to get people moving and not sitting. Um, So it's really important uh, even to just get up for a few minutes every half an hour. That activity counts.
0: So sedentary lifestyle, sort of, is that the traditional couch potato where you really just don't do much more than watch TV or screen time kinds
2: of things or I come to work and I sit in front of a computer for eight hours so you know I get up I do my 30 minute walk or whatever activity and then I go to work and I sit Um, And so the guidelines are really strong trying to get people to get up for just a minute or two every hour, if that's possible, to not sit for prolonged periods of time. Because there is some preliminary research that suggests that that negates that walk that I did in the morning.
0: Do you know how many uh, or what percent of the population is
2: following this? It depends on the research study, but somewhere between 25 to 41 percent of the adult population are achieving the guidelines. And if I have a disability, that number drops. So, again, depending on the population looked at, you can see anywhere from 10 to 26 percent. Um, and the, the thing that's sad is individuals that are already experiencing disability, maybe. Functional limitations. In some ways, they need to be more active because they're on that precipice of um, uh, possibly getting to the point where they really cannot walk independently. And and once that occurs, once you know we see individuals that are already in a wheelchair, it is very difficult, um, you know, to kind of get them up and moving again. So. I would uh, propose that individuals that are already experiencing disability, it's even more important to be active.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with exercise physiologist Carol Sames from Upstate Medical University uh, about how exercise is medicine. So, what are some of the the suggestions that you've come across for implanting this exercises medicine philosophy into the healthcare system.
2: So one, we have to educate healthcare providers. Okay. <laughs> and there is a lot of information on the exercises medicine website for healthcare providers to to be seen as like the gateway, um, to be seen as a, as an expert. Whereas if if I'm working with individuals and I and I start to pro- provide exercise or activity education to say, listen, you know, what are you doing? Are you aware of the benefits of of being active? And I think it's important for people to realize it's not just one or two benefits that you get with physical activity. You know, there's, there's 100 at least benefits that have pretty strong scientific basis and so I may go into my physician saying I want to lose weight but I also get all these other benefits along with that if I am uh, engaged in regular activity and so for healthcare providers to really be leading the charge um, it may be difficult you know in a single physician visit mm-hmm. but physical therapists for instance who may see uh, patients over a long period of time um, they, they're Seeing individuals two three times a week, sure. they they are gatekeepers there to continue to support and provide, um, you know, an example and also uh, a program for individuals. Exercise professionals also. Um, you know, respiratory therapists, anybody who has contact with individuals. And then also we need community leaders um, from the, the standpoint of trying to, to build communities that have these options, to have areas, so malls that are open early for, for individuals walkers. to go to and yeah. walk. Absolutely, especially here in central New York. Sure.
0: Does it get to the point where um, you suggest to a physician that they write a
2: prescription? They actually take out and write a prescription for activity? Absolutely. Um, Following the guidelines and also maybe a referral to an exercise specialist or a physical therapist if, you know, there's a concern that the person might need a little bit more initial guidance in in kind of setting up a a program. But that's what it's called, an exercise prescription. And it has to be individualized based on that person with the ultimate goal of achieving the guidelines. Um, And that goal may take six months, it may take a year, but that is you know, the goal is to achieve the guidelines.
0: Well, I think I read where this effort is not just national, but international. Um, Are you aware of any countries where, like, this is working really well, where the community has, you know, become more um, accepting of activity and set up
2: programs for? Yes. So Sweden and Denmark um, have done a really good job. Now, uh, they also had uh, before this initiative started, they did have better um, recreational facilities and more of a wellness um, perspective in healthcare, but they have really embraced um, the exercise as medicine concept, and it's working really well in their countries. So a good model. Okay. Yes.
0: Well, uh, I want to ask you about the research that proves that, medis- that there's medical benefit of mm-hmm. exercise. Is there really research out there that proves it?
2: Uh, very strong. So you have studies that have been going on for a long period of time. For instance, the Framingham study. It started in 1950. And um, it started with individuals that were 18 to 65 years old living in Framingham, Massachusetts. So they followed these individuals. Obviously, the older individuals in that initial crew have, have passed away. But they followed them as they aged. And they basically are looking at, at activity and, you know, cause of death and development of cardiovascular disease and diabetes and you're following this over time so these types of observational studies you're looking at 10,000 20,000 people the Harvard men's study there are all types of these longitudinal studies following people over a long period of time and seeing you know what what is developing over time and what is cause of death and so the research is very strong cardiovascular disease diabetes um, metabolic syndrome, hypertension, um, that is very, very strong. And now we initially just saw breast and colon cancer, but now there's other um, cancers that have come out. One of the latest um, updates is uh, cognition and Alzheimer's disease, dementia, um, that exercise, physical activity can be protective in the development of um, cognitive wow. deficits. So
0: Wow. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, you also mentioned earlier about how exercise is important for everyone, but particularly people who are becoming less able to, to move on their own, it maybe becomes even more important. Can it be the difference between
2: someone being able to live independently and and not? Oh, absolutely. Because if you just think about the activities of daily living, you need a certain amount of strength um, to be able to accomplish those. And, you know, if you're living in an older home in the city of Syracuse, chances are you have stairs. And those stairs have to be negotiated. You may not have a bathroom on the first floor. Um, you know, laundry may be in the basement. Um, so if you just think about getting up and out of a chair, going up and down stairs, that requires a lot of strength. And so, Absolutely. Being as functional as possible impacts my ability to be mobile and impacts my ability to live safely independently. So the use it or lose it sort of thing? Uh, Certainly with muscles, that's the way it works. Well, in the
0: little bit of time we have left, can you tell us what you've seen in the Vitality Fitness Program? Um, Because you work with people who maybe are deconditioned or frail, and how do you go about convincing them of the importance of building muscle strength and
2: you know, getting to the 150 minutes. Right. Well, certainly by the time they come to us, they've all most likely already have decided they want to be active because they're already coming to us. Mm -hmm. But um, what we do is we test them when they start. And then every six months we test again so that they can start to see these little wins. You know, if you talk about maintaining adherence to a new program, you want to see improvement. And so we have their... Exercise logs and so if in three months they're like I don't know if I'm doing any better we go back and say well when you started you were walking for four minutes at this speed on the treadmill. And then they look and say, Wow, I'm at 15 minutes. I've noticed in the spring I can do gardening. I can do things that I really couldn't do before. Going up the stairs is easier. Getting out of a chair is easier. I really feel better. And because it's physiology, you know, after eight weeks, if you're consistent with regular activity, you're going to notice changes, you're going to notice less fatigue, you're going to notice you know, more endurance, you're going to notice strength, because it's physiology, it's, it's not some fad you're trying to be sold. It's the body. And that's the way the body works. And that's got to be
0: very motivating.
2: To Absolutely. Keep, to keep at it. And so once you start to see those benefits, you want to continue.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking about this with me. I appreciate it. My guest has been Dr. Carol Sames from Upstate Medical University's Vitality Fitness Program and the Physical Therapy Education Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Does cannabis really have the ability to relieve pain? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cannabinoid drugs may have the ability to relieve pain, or it may be that they increase a person's pain threshold or reduce the sensation of pain. The first systematic review of experimental research on the effects of cannabis on pain was done at Syracuse University, which is one of Upstate Medical University's neighbors. And here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to discuss his study is Martin DeVita, He's a doctoral candidate in the clinical psychology department at SU. Welcome and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, I use the the word cannabinoid and cannabis, and I wanted to start with having you explain what those are. Yeah,
3: sure. Um, Cannabinoid drugs and cannabinoid-based medicines are usually compounds derived from cannabis plants. And so when we talk about cannabis, usually um, people refer to that as marijuana or plant-based cannabis. And cannabis plants can actually have um, hundreds of different cannabinoid compounds in them. Um, And then cannabinoid-based medicines are those synthetic derivatives, so um, like... uh, synthetic THC for instance isolated THC um, and put into a pill form essentially or other uh, routes of administration.
0: So THC is a cannabinoid?
3: Uh, Absolutely yes. Okay and
0: that's the one that is that the the component that sort of gives the high?
3: Yeah, and so primarily when we think about uh, plant-based cannabis, one of the primary active ingredients or cannabinoids in that is THC. Um, So uh, by volume, it's usually the most prevalent. Now, uh, more recently, people have started developing strains with less THC and higher amounts of other cannabinoids like CBD or cannabidiol.
0: CBD. I've seen that uh, in ads all Everywhere. over the place lately. Yeah, 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 so that's another cannabinoid. Yeah, too.
3: that's another cannabinoid, um, you know, that the. Uh look very similar when you look at them. Um, but they just have little changes between them, or little distinctive characteristics. Um, but CBD has definitely caught the attention of a lot of people as a non-psychoactive um, cannabinoid compound, whereas THC does produce those psychoactive effects or that feeling of being high.
0: Okay. All right. Now, the laws about um, marijuana use and cannabinoid products are evolving. Um, there are some states that that have legalized recreational use, and some have legalized medical use. And the governor of New York has said he favors legalizing marijuana. So what would that do? What would that mean for our state? Would we see uh, marijuana products or what would?
3: Yeah, I think we would definitely see um, a lot more diversity in the type of products available to the general public. Um, There are a lot of different types of um, preparations of cannabinoid products. You can have edibles, you can have smoked marijuana, cigarettes, um, or you can uh, vape it in different ways. And so uh, it's, it's immensely diverse, but I think we'll definitely see that. Um, we'll also see probably a lot more recreational use just across the public, being that it's more available. Uh, we'll probably also see a lot more regulation of those products. Mm-hmm. So um, one concern that uh, a lot of us have as clinical researchers is people who are using marijuana or cannabis recreationally might not know exactly what's in those cannabis drugs that they're using. It might not even be cannabis. They might uh, think that they're using pure uh, cannabis plants, but that might actually have synthetic cannabinoids in it. So there's always that risk of um, not knowing uh, what's in cannabis that you buy off the street uh, if it's not regulated very well. So
0: um, you mentioned other products. These are these would be products that aren't smoked necessarily. Yeah. So there might be more of a, a variety of things. Absolutely,
3: available. Um, you know, uh, THC can be put into lots of different things. Um, uh, the people who manufacture these products are very creative in the way that they that they do them. Um, and so uh, edibles, uh, chocolate, candy, gummies. Uh, you know, it, it's endless the amount of preparations that can be made really, um, and. There's no shortage of people trying new preparations or coming up with these new things.
0: Well, you were involved in a study that was published in an American Medical Association journal called JAMA Psychiatry. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the first systematic review of the effects of cannabis on pain. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people turn to these products or marijuana for pain relief, right? Yeah, yeah. So do they work? I guess that's the magic question. That is the
3: magic question, and um, the experimental research that had been done up until then had been producing a lot of mixed findings, which is really interesting. Some studies were saying that uh, cannabinoids were working, some of them were saying that they weren't, and then some even said that uh, they were increasing people's pain sensitivity. So as a clinical scientist, we're left with this question, what is the answer? Um, That happens sometimes Uh, in science. We have discrepant findings. One way to resolve that is by um, pulling all the research, extracting all the data and synthesizing it with uh, statistical procedures called meta-analyses. And so instead of a bunch of studies with very small sample sizes, you create this conceptual large study with hundreds of participants. And you pull all that data together and that gives you a clearer picture. Um So what we found in that particular study was that um, the uh, while cannabinoid drugs might uh, prevent the onset of pain by uh, increasing people's pain threshold, uh, it didn't really significantly reduce uh, pain that people were Already experiencing. Um, it didn't reduce the intensity of that pain. Instead, what it did for a lot of people was reduce the unpleasantness that people had, um, their pain unpleasantness, or how they created the unpleasantness of that pain and allowed them to tolerate more pain. Uh, so, what I guess collectively what that um, suggests is that a lot of cannabinoid drugs act on um, the affective component or that emotional evaluative component of pain rather than the sensory component or the intensity of that pain. So it might not get rid of the pain, but it won't make you feel better about it. But those, we also found that those effects were relatively small in size.
0: Well, it, does it does it matter what type of pain? Because there's different kinds of pain, right? Absolutely,
3: absolutely. Um, and so that's sort of what these different measures get at. The ones we looked at were uh, pain threshold, pain tolerance, pain intensity, and pain unpleasantness, and then uh, another outcome called mechanical hyperalgesia, or that's the sensitivity to uh, mechanical-type stimulus, like touch, uh, pain sensitivity to actual pressure or touch on your skin. Huh. And uh, again, what we found with threshold, Threshold Threshold represents um, the amount of stimulus it takes to actually feel a pain sensation. So, um, you know, if you press on somebody's arm, if you keep pressing slowly harder and harder and harder, it's the point at which that becomes a painful sensation. With cannabinoid drugs, it raised that a little bit. Um, But for pain that was already being experienced, uh, it didn't necessarily reduce the intensity of that pain. But that effective component, that effective type of pain, the emotional pain that people were feeling, it did reduce that One thing that this study uh, did was it actually looked at experimental pain induced in a laboratory. And so that differs from the different clinical pain uh, conditions that are out there one of the troubles or difficulties we as scientists have in studying chronic pain or the effects of cannabis on chronic pain is that they're so different and they're also a lot of comorbid conditions with chronic pain like depression and anxiety and those can affect pain the way we perceive pain so experimental pain procedures mimic features of chronic pain or clinical pain conditions and allow us to have more precise estimates without all the noise from these other con- these other conditions that might co-occur with it.
0: Interesting. Well, um, how does your study speak to the effects of different types of cannabis-based drugs and medicines as they relate to pain?
3: Yeah. So one thing that we were interested in is looking at different types of cannabinoid drugs and their effect on these indices, and what we found were uh, was that plant-based cannabis was showing the largest effect sizes. So uh, we did look at synthetic derivatives like Nabalone, um and other types of cannabinoid drugs uh, that are uh, created by pharmacists or in a lab or put into capsules. And in general, we did find that the largest effects were for plant-based cannabis. Um, and so one of the reasons we think that that might be happening is because uh, smoking or inhaling uh cannabinoid drugs is probably a faster route and um it's more potent administration um and there are probably more psychoactive effects with um, plant-based cannabinoids so um anytime uh, given that pain is a very uh, Uh, people think about it as this biomedical phenomenon but it's very psychological in a lot of ways and so if you are using a substance that alters your mindset or your mind state um chances are it's probably going to affect your experience or how you experience pain as well so you throw on psychoactive effects and it's it you start to wonder how much of that is influencing what we see in these pain outcomes
0: so, in your study, what you looked at with cannabis in general would have included THC and CBD yeah. in different levels. Yeah.
3: And so, most of the plant-based cannabis um, that we looked at uh, had uh, varying levels of THC as the main component. Um, and then the we did look at uh, studies that had used uh, synthetic THC, comp- that, uh, THC in pill form essentially. Okay. Um, and then there were other synthetic cannabinoids that are less commonly used uh, but are still tested uh, for their effects on um, these pain outcomes.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Martin DeVita, a doctoral candidate in the clinical psychology department at Syracuse University. And we're talking about his study on um, cannabis and its effects on pain. Um, so, the findings, what you've looked at in your study, how can they be of use to? Well, healthcare providers and also just regular people.
3: Yeah, so um, I think clinic or both clinicians and patients alike, and anybody interested in using cannabinoid uh, compounds or drugs or medicines to alleviate pain should be informed about what the evidence says about how uh, efficacious these drugs are, um, mm-hmm. and before they make a decision about uh, you know potentially using any medication. And that's ho- that holds true for anything really. Sure. Um, and so. Uh, you know our findings suggest that cannabinoids might not be a magic bullet for uh these painful conditions or pain in general it might not you know completely eliminate the pain it might uh, it might help relieve some of the stress related to pain that you experience or the negative emotions that uh, you experience but uh, that should be something to consider when um, calibrating your expectations for what this treatment can and cannot do um
0: when you talk about um, relieving the stress related to pain, that sounds like anxiety. Would it help yeah, for anxiety?
3: That's certainly one of we we talk in, um, in our field about pain-related anxiety, for instance. Okay. Uh, anxiety related to the potential for pain or the pain you already have. Um, anxiety is certainly one thing that you can experience when you experience pain. Uh, sadness is another one. Pain is inherently unpleasant, so um, you know, if. If you can relieve some of that, then certainly there's utility in that. Um, the question is uh, what are the pros and cons of any intervention that's designed to help with that?
0: I don't know if you know the answer to this, but uh, are, is there potential for addiction with the CBD or THC containing products?
3: Yeah, so um, I think that, uh, you know. Cannabis-related cannabis, cannabis related drugs, um, the ones that we typically think of, um, plant-based cannabis that is used uh, more commonly recreationally, um, it certainly has an addictive potential in some people. Um, is it as addictive as some of these other drugs like uh, opioids or um, not necessarily? It doesn't have the same abuse liability that those mm-hmm. drugs have. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, the, an abuse liability for those uh, cannabinoids with psychoactive compounds in them like THC. Um, Especially uh, there might be concerns about people using them to cope with certain uh, illnesses and uh, using that as a form of avoidance potentially instead of um, seeking out something that might actually help that like physical fitness or nutrition. Same thing with you know uh, that you would see the same type of addictive mechanisms that play a role in like alcohol. You know a lot of people use alcohol to treat their pain or cope with their pain and um, it, it might be effective in some regards um, there might be analge- there are analgesic properties in alcohol. Is it always the best to use that or is it a magic bullet for that? Probably not, but um, CBD, the cannabidiol that everybody's hearing about now, um, actually is a, from the research that's out now, has a decent safety profile in and of itself. Um, so that's for pure cannabidiol or CBD. Uh, the World Health Organization considers its safety profile to be relatively good. Um, That being said, that doesn't mean that all the CBD products that are blowing up on shelves right now are uh, actually CBD even. So um, recent uh, studies that have looked at um, CBD products available online, for instance, have found that not all of them have um, are reporting the accurate amount of CBD they even have in them. So um, again, it's not a very well-regulated market for cannabidiol right now, so there's always that concern of is this actually the substance that I'm taking and is it mixed with something else? Um, if you're taking CBD with THC, then this, obviously the safety profile for CBD alone would be different, different. for that. Sure. Um,
0: Well, what new questions arose from your study? Did you come across anything that you would like to look for answers for in the future?
3: Definitely. So um, one of the primary uh, questions that we have after doing this was, we had this observation that all of the available research was on cannabinoids that have psychoactive properties um, in the available research. None had been done on things like pure CBD, for instance, uh, which does not have those psychoactive properties. And as I mentioned before, given that pain is such a psychological experience, um, anytime you have psychoactive properties in something, it's going to change your experience of how you perceive pain or how much it bothers you uh so one thing that we're interested in is looking at things like cannabidiol a a cannabinoid compound that looks very similar molecularly uh to thc but doesn't have those psychoactive effects on these pain outcomes um and you know there's a laundry list of things that we need to get to as researchers but that's that's at the top of my list um also looking at psychological outcomes that would be relevant like expectancies um we know that if you expect something to relieve your pain, um, there might be a little bit of a placebo effect that occurs um, in either addition to the actual pharmacological effect or um, in the absence of that. So, you know, by telling somebody this substance is going to relieve your pain, if they believe that, they might actually report better uh, improvements in pain. Yeah. So.
0: Well, this is an exciting field. Yeah.
3: Thank you so much for
0: telling us about it. Thank you. My guest has been Martin DeVita, a doctoral candidate in the clinical psychology department at Syracuse University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Flowers are a source of inspiration for poets such as Carol Alexander and Mary Gardner. Alexander's latest book, Environments, is from Dos Madres Press and is a collection of her most recent poetry. Her poem, Immortality, presents a world composed of illness Disability, love, relationship, and nature, taking us from sadness to rage to joy in two short stanzas. Immortality. From the Carmen chair wheeled to lunch, you press the bearded iris on me. The therapy dog is well-conformed, keen-nosed, yet biddable. To walk to the creek? Impossible. Impossible the cellar stairs, mounds of laundry, dust mice, spiral notebooks the pointless lone ice skate. Your still deft hands grasp a glass of tea. I'm here as if I'll always be stronger than that justifiable rage fed from a dish of cracked pink salt. The bearded iris goes by immortality. Bred to charm the meanest eye, why iris in these indrawn days? It clings like the ancient chestnut tree menacing the low garage, an incestuous tree but the iris tethered to its little patch of soil sword-shaped anthers flirting to rebloom abashed sun filters through chestnut leaves loquacious roots banked stubbornly a skunk slinks past the drains your nurse rolls down her stockings texts smokes an unfiltered cigarette doesn't everything grow rich the burrs that cling to the dog's rough fur indentured for dispersal dissuading deer, yet untouched by blight, the lustrous lemon air. Mary Gardner, poet from Skinny Atlas, shows us poetry's concision and compression in her deft poem, Small Promise, which is a glorious word painting of breakfast. Small Promise. Even a rugged day ahead can be acceptable if anticipated by a red nasturtium freshly cut and secure on a slender sea green stem resting upright on a plate of scrambled eggs and avocado
0: this has been upstate's health link on air Brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about atrial fibrillation. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.